This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. My name is John. I've spent the better part of my life honing my skills as a tracker and hunter. The wilderness is my home, and the challenge of uncovering nature's secrets is always called to me, but nothing could have prepared me for the chilling investigation that awaited me in the dense forests of Wyoming. I received a call one day, a plea for help from the locals. Five campers had vanished without a trace, leaving behind only an air of mystery and fear. Determined to uncover the truth, I accepted the task of unraveling this unsettling puzzle. As I delved deeper into the case, analyzing the evidence left behind, a grim realization washed over me. These campers had not simply disappeared. They had fallen victim to an unseen predator that feasted on their flesh, leaving nothing but bones in its wake. 
The sheer brutality of the attack spoke of a creature unlike any I had encountered before. This predator, according to my calculations based on the size and strength of the bones left behind, weighed at least 2,000 pounds. Its speed surpassed that of any creature I had ever known, capable of reaching speeds over 80 miles per hour. It resembled a wolf in some ways, but it was larger and more powerful, a true apex predator lurking within the shadows. Every step I took through the forest, every sound I made, I could feel the predator's presence. It was as if it were toying with me, testing my resolve, watching my every move. I could almost hear its heavy breaths and the low growls that reverberated through the trees. With every passing moment, the line between hunter and hunted blurred. I knew that I had to rely on my instincts and survival skills to turn the tables on this relentless creature. I set up traps and studied its patterns, hoping to gain an advantage over this insatiable hunger that lurked within the depths of the forest. Days turned into weeks as the predator stalked me relentlessly. Each encounter brought me closer to the edge of my sanity, but I refused to succumb to fear. The woods had become my battleground, and I would not allow myself to become just another victim. Finally, the fateful day arrived. In a tense confrontation, I faced the predator head on, utilizing every ounce of my expertise. The battle was fierce and unforgiving, each of us pushing ourselves to the brink. Blood and sweat mingled in the air as we clashed, a primal dance of life and death. With a surge of determination, I managed to gain the upper hand, turning the predator's own strength against it. The beast let out a deafening roar of defeat, its dominance shattered by my unyielding will. It was over. As the predator's life force faded away, a mix of relief and exhaustion washed over me. The forest had reclaimed its tranquility, the echoes of the predator's presence dissipating into the wind. I stood among the bones of its victims, a testament to the darkness that had once shrouded this place. But the memory of that harrowing encounter will forever linger in my mind. The untamed wild holds secrets that defy comprehension. Not hiking, but a camping story, me and the wife went to this random spot up in Tennessee. It was a pretty sweet spot down a mountain range with a huge swimming area. The entire day went great, but later in the night, that's when it got crazy. We passed out at like 10 p.m. at around 3 a.m. My wife frantically wakes me up saying there was weird noises and movement outside the tent. My first thought, it was a bear, as in waking up trying to gather my senses. I hear movement, and all of a sudden, this thing sticks its face in the mesh of the tent. It looked human, somewhat kind of freaked out. I immediately came flying out this tent by that time this thing. Whatever it was took off, running uphill in pitch black conditions. Needless to say, we have not went back to that spot, because, or honestly, I, I don't think it was a person. I walked down a random trail near another, more well-known trail system called the Shed Pond Loop in Maine. I came across this custom-made sign that gave me some Stephen King vibes and painted almost childlike in appearance that said, Dad's Way. 
I followed it, and there were pretty much zero markings, and it was almost entirely overgrown. Zero sounds of animals, like very eerily quiet and claustrophobic feeling the entire time. Turned around to bail when I kept seeing movement that I thought were bikers, but upon closer inspection it was just more dense woods, meaning no trail and no possible way bikers would be out there. When I turned around to bail, no sign of the trail I'd been following. Followed one direction that I was certain would take me out to a road, so at this point I'm trudging through dense wood. In the middle of this random area, I come across a chair with a tree growing through it and a few very old glass beer bottles next to it. No trail, no clearings just in the middle of these woods. Walked faster and made it out finally, but the whole thing felt so surreal. Hiked all day to summit Mountain Washington in the Cascades, only to come 25 feet from a mountain goat and his kid at the peak. We booked it until we felt like we had made it a safe distance. Looked up, and there he was staring into our souls with those damn goat eyes, kid between his legs. Stalked us the whole way down the mountain. Doesn't help that we all smelled like salty sweat from hiking all day. Honestly thought I was going to get rammed off the mountain that day. Walking the property I was a caretaker of. Saw a car that was very out of the ordinary and I didn't recognize on the land. The land is a good mile and half down, some not so very friendly roads, and behind a locked gate, which freaked me out a bit. I'm inspecting the car a bit, and this man comes lumbering at me, wielding a rifle in near pitch black conditions, and says he's gonna shoot if I don't deplane myself. I have to calmly explain him he's trespassing, and I'll call the cops if he doesn't leave right away. He apologized for the mix-up since he thought he was on the neighbor's land, but of course this is after I had a hunting rifle aimed at my skull on land he wasn't welcome on. I was hiking in Florida, just trail blazing through a wildlife corridor close to Peace River when I was 18 and I came across a dead wild hog. It looked like something had ripped it apart. Throat ripped, marks all along, its sides and guts spread out. In the corner of my eyes I saw a bit of tawny fur and the soft sound of something heavy moving quietly. I realized I walked into a Florida panther eating its meal and how bad the situation was. At the time, all I used to carry was a knife. Nowadays, I carry a handgun for protection. Anyways, I keep the big cat in view as best as I can and start making my way out of the game trail I had followed so I could get back to my truck. The panther followed me for about ten minutes, and the whole time I felt like running. But I knew it would try to pounce me if I did. So I had to constantly look in its direction and keep track of it, while barely seeing it in the wood line. I never felt so small in my life. My husband and I were hiking in the Smokies this past May. We always started late, so most other people were finishing up their hikes by the time we got started. 
So we were on a pretty unpopular path and saw a few people in the beginning, but after 30 minutes or so, we were the only ones on the trail. A good bit of the trails in the part of the park we were in were closed anyway due to a severe windstorm the week prior. It started out as a nice easy hike. We went up through some creepy, crispy hemlock patches that the wildfires had passed through last fall. These were slightly creepy, but mostly awesome, especially since hemlock are all twisty in the first place and these were charred. Then we started back down in about an hour and came to a sign that said cemetery. I had researched the trail on a few weave sites and hadn't seen anything about a cemetery. It seemed fun, spooky, so we followed the arrow, but the trail became extremely overgrown. We turned around, and after five minutes of where we picked up the trail, we had to crawl under a huge down tree and cross a creek, where the trail inexplicably split. No signs. Not supposed to be a fork here. We hadn't seen anyone in over an hour, and after our brief encounter with the cemetery trail, we started to get a bit freaked out. We realized that we aren't going to make it out before dark if we took the wrong fork. And still, why was there a fork? And where is this mystery cemetery? Anyway, we did take the right fork. The cemetery was right off a road. Nowhere near that sign, and we encountered llamas on our safe return. A friend of mine and I were out hiking through the woods. It was dark out, and we were beginning to head back towards home when something came across the path by a fallen tree. It's hard to describe, but it looked like a man in a hooded cloak. It stood and then slowly and silently moved to a tree and keeled. We couldn't see its face, but we got that feeling it was watching us. We tried to shrug it off and keep moving. Further down the trail, we saw it again. Being in our early teens, we decided stupidly that we were getting to the bottom of this, so we started after it, and it started charging it. We screamed, and it stopped, and then took off into the woods. Feeling brave again, I grabbed a big spear-shaped stick and took off after it. I ran for a bit through the woods until I could see the outline of it once more, up ahead through the moonlight. I knelt and watched as another popped up beside it, and then another. Then I heard moving to the side of me. Realizing that whatever these things were, they were surrounding me, I quickly noped the F out of there back in the direction. I left my friend. So I know that sounds like the creepy part, but it gets weirder. My friend wasn't where I had left him, so I called out to him. He responded a little way away and followed it with, You gotta see this. So I followed his voice and came out to a clearing. It was bright as F, and floating around the clearing were legit balls of light, almost like the fairy fountains from the Legend of Zelda, those red balls that float near the fountain. Except these were pure white light. We looked at each other and then hightailed it back to the trail and back home. Not the scariest, but definitely the strangest thing I've ever witnessed. In high school, I went with my friends to an abandoned construction site during a full moon to have some beers on the roof and look at the view. It was high on a hill. As we were leaving, they offered me $10 to go down and walk around in the pitch, black basement. Me lacking any belief in the paranormal, this seemed like an easy way to make 10 bucks. 
I went down the stairs with my phone light on, but when I reached the bottom and turned the corner, I turned off my light because I was fairly sure my friends were going to try to scare me and figured I might be able to get the upper hand on them. At this point, I also turned on my video with no flash because I wanted to catch their fear firsthand. Video might be on my computer somewhere. I whispered to the video something about being off the grid and began waiting. I waited around the corner for a couple minutes, but heard nothing. Then I began to hear what sounded like large rocks being dropped down the stairway to the basement. This seemed like the perfect start to my buddy's scaring tactics, so I thought nothing of it. The sounds continued for a while, and eventually I got bored as it seemed they were too scared to actually come down the stairs, and started slowly making my way out the other side of the unfinished basement. When I reached the car, everyone wanted to know where I'd been and what took me so long. Again, I assumed this must have been a tactic to freak me out, but then I realized everyone that had come with me was in the car, and there would have been no one in the house to continue dropping the rocks as I was leaving. There was no way someone could have made it back to the car before me while continuing to drop the rocks and avoid me seeing them. I still don't at all believe in ghosts or the like, but I wonder if there was maybe a squatter or someone else in the blackness with me who was trying to scare me away. The scariest part was that I had absolutely no fear about the incident as it was happening, but looking back on it, I should have run out of there screaming. Easily the scariest thing I've ever been a part of. My name is Lieutenant Commander Jack Diaz, and I'm the team leader of an elite group of Navy SEALs. When we were told that a CIA operative had gone missing in North Korea, we knew we were in for a hell of a mission. As it turned out, it was far worse than we could have imagined. Our insertion into North Korea was as quiet as a whisper, the night sky providing us the perfect cover. The operative's last known location was an isolated compound in the mountains. We moved swiftly, avoiding patrols and staying off the grid. Upon reaching the compound, we quickly realized this wasn't just a holding site. We stumbled upon a full-blown bioweapon facility. It was a chilling sight. Vials of deadly pathogens, blueprints of dispersal methods, and chilling indications of test trials. We realized we were standing in the heart of a potential global catastrophe. Our mission suddenly expanded. We had to rescue the operative, dismantle this operation, and get out alive. Tensions on the Korean Peninsula were high. Any misstep could ignite a war. We made our way deeper into the facility. It was there we found him, the captive operative, but this was no stranger. I recognized him instantly. It was Ghost, a former SEAL, a brother. We thought he had died years ago in a mission gone sideways. Seeing him again, battered but alive, it was a shock. With renewed determination, we fought our way through the facility, neutralizing guards and sabotaging their operation. Ghost, even in his weakened state, fought alongside us. He was a seal through and through. We set charges along the facility, ready to wipe this nightmare off the map. But we were running out of time. North Korean reinforcements were closing in, and we were still deep within enemy territory. The fight out of the facility was fierce. 
We moved as one, covering each other's backs just like old times. Ghost was with us, moving with the fluid grace that we remembered. As we made our last sprint towards our extraction point, we detonated the charges. The facility went up in a blaze. The bioweapons and their sinister plans incinerated. Our chopper whisked us away just as enemy reinforcements swarmed the area. We were battered, bruised, but victorious. As we crossed the border, we shared a look of relief. Ghost was back with us, and we had averted a potential global catastrophe. But we knew our fight wasn't over. Ghost's existence, the bioweapons facility, it was all part of something bigger, something more dangerous. But whatever it was, we were ready, we were SEALs, and we'd never back down from a fight. When I was seven, I was camping with my parents and baby sister in Virginia. We were staying in a campground specifically for RVs, but there were also some cabins available to rent. On the first day there, after being constantly pestered to take me to the park, my dad complained to my mom that I was old enough to walk the short distance to the park and play without supervision. My mom has always been very overprotective and a worrier, and even more so after this camping trip. My mom finally gave in and allowed me to go alone to the campground park. While at the playground, I met a little girl around my own age, and we played together for a while. She was also by herself. I invited her to come back to my RV to play with Barbies with me, and we headed in that direction. On the way, we crossed paths with my parents, who were going to another family's RV to visit and socialize. We let them know we were going to play Barbies in my family's RV. After we played for a little while, she suggested we pack up the Barbies and go to the cabin she and her grandparents were staying in to play with her Barbies too, which we did. It never even occurred to me that my parents didn't know this girl or her family or where I would have gone. They had assumed we were going to stay in my RV and play. We played at her cabin for a long time, and while we played, her grandparents were packing up their things and preparing to leave the campground. When they were all packed up to go, they said they would drop me back off at my RV on their way so I wouldn't have to walk. Obviously, my parents had always told me to never get in a car with a stranger, and I knew this. But it just never occurred to me that this was exactly what they meant. I genuinely never felt remotely afraid or concerned about the situation. The little girl's grandparents packed up their car, and we all climbed in. We stopped at the campground's general store, and her grandpa bought us both ice cream cones. All I could think was how nice and generous her family was. We got back in the car, and I assumed they would next be dropping me off at my ride. I sat in the car, eating my ice cream and talking with my friend, completely oblivious to the outside of the car. Suddenly, my door flew open, and my dad, with tears pouring down his cheeks, yanked me out of the car and hugged me harder than he ever had in my life. I was so confused, and then the car, I was in sped away, very quickly. It was then that I realized that we were at the exit of the campground. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Apparently, upon returning to our RV and finding my new friend and me gone without a trace... My parents had contacted the ranger station, and a lot of people were out looking for me. In the woods and going door to door to the other IVs. My dad just happened to be walking by as he saw me in the people's car, just about to leave the campground. I don't know who those people were, but they definitely had no intention of bringing me back to my parents. I think the ice cream was bought to distract me from noticing we weren't heading in the direction of my own campsite. Over the years, I've often thought of that day and how different my life could be if my dad hadn't seen me just in the nick of time. I remember that day clearly. I was in the kitchen, phone pressed to my ear, lost in conversation with my sister. As we chatted, I found myself idly watching the hillside across the creek through the kitchen window. My dogs were causing a ruckus outside, their barks echoing through the quiet of the afternoon. Curiosity peaked. I squinted, trying to see what had them so worked up. That's when I noticed the bushes. They were rustling, leaves swaying in a rhythm that didn't match the gentle breeze of the day. And then amidst the greenery I saw it, a figure. It was tall, broad, and stout, covered in long, dark brown hair. It almost resembled a human, but there was something distinctly primal, almost ape-like about it. For a solid two minutes, I just stared, my mind struggling to make sense of what I was seeing. It moved through the bushes, causing leaves to quiver in its wake before it vanished as abruptly as it had appeared. The whole time, I was on the phone with my sister narrating the event in hushed, awestruck whispers. A wave of excitement washed over me, followed swiftly by a sharp jolt of fear. I quickly locked the door and rushed to check for my husband's 12-gauge. Safety first, right? I didn't see the creature, the Sasquatch, after that day. But every now and then, my dogs would bark in that same peculiar, whimpering way, a bark different from their usual. It always made me wonder if they sensed its presence. Years later, my sister was watching a documentary about Sasquatch sightings in the Portland, Oregon area on the Learning Channel. It aired on Friday, October 27, 2000, and it brought back memories of our phone conversation that day. 
She called me excitement, evident in her voice. She had done some research and found this website, and she urged me to document my sighting. It was a surreal experience, one that has stayed with me even after all these years. The memory of the creature in the rustling bushes is as clear as day, a reminder of the mysteries that our world still holds. I was living in one of the cabins with my husband and two younger children. We had finished dinner and they were in the living room. It was getting later, but was still pretty light out, as it had been sunny that day. I started to walk from the kitchen to the living room, and a movement caught my eye straight ahead through the bathroom window. I stood stock still in disbelief as a Sasquatch walked up the dirt road heading south from our cabin. With huge long strides, I could see his back only. I sensed it was a male, though I couldn't say why. He seemed to be aware of me watching him, but wasn't worried. He was about seven feet tall, with reddish-brown hair about two feet long. He had very long arms and legs, and walked very confidently and controlled-looking. He walked behind a large tree at the edge of the road and just disappeared. I kept waiting for him to show up on the other side of the tree, but he just seemed to vanish. I wasn't frightened, as he didn't seem malevolent or animalistic. Our dog was chained up outside the window, and she was barking and lunging at the end of her chain, watching him. He didn't seem at all phased by the dog. I was so engrossed watching him that I didn't think to say anything out loud until he disappeared. Then I walked into the living room in a daze and told my husband I just saw a Bigfoot walk up the road. I went out a few minutes later and looked at the road by the tree, but the ground was too dry and packed for any tracks to show. Two of my friends and I, all three early twenties females, were hiking around Yellowstone. This day was really busy at the park, and we ended up driving around until we could find parking lot that wasn't as busy. We found one that was off the beaten path a bit, and there were no cars in the parking lot. We got out of the car, looked around, grabbed our gear, and headed out. One of my friends, call her Sarah, and I were taking a photo as well. The other friend, Sylvia, started walking ahead of us. So we finish taking photos, and we go to start trying to catch up to the two Sylvia, and as we're trying to catch up, and I look across a little opening, and I see a man in a bright blue rain jacket. I thought that was odd, and thought maybe another trail connects to this one. But I tap Sarah and say there's another person on the trail. But by the time she looked, the person in the bright blue jacket was gone. Sylvia, at this point, was at the tree line, waiting for us before she went into the wooded part. Finally, all three of us are together, and we start walking in the wooded part, and it's very quiet, nothing but nature sounds, and I start to get this feeling like we are being watched. We were now where I would have saw the man in the blue jacket. We finally exit the wooded part, and we come to a big opening that's sort of muddy and swampy. I start going ahead because I just want to get out of the woods, and I notice as I'm going to head on the boardwalk, there's no footprints. The area was really muddy, so there's no way that anybody could cross this boardwalk and not left either footprints in the mud or wet muddy footprints on the boardwalk. So I stopped, and I looked behind me, and I see my friends still standing at the opening of the wooded area, and they were motioning me to go back to them. 
So I turned around and I meet them at the opening of the wooded area. Sylvia leaned in and said that soon as we got to the opening of the wood area, she started to get a feeling that she was being watched. I asked Sarah if she had told Sylvia about the man in the blue jacket, and she said no. At this point, the fact that I had the feeling of being watched in the wooded area, and Sylvia, who had no idea about the man in the blue jacket, was feeling watched in the no footprints on the boardwalk. We were all very creeped out. We then heard a car pull up in the parking lot, as we still weren't very far from the parking lot, and we hear doors open, and we hear kids laughing and slamming doors, and mom and dad tell them to get their water, and all of that. We decided right then and there that if we could hear people in the parking lot, we should be able to hear the man, the blue jacket, walking and R.C. him. The three of us hauled ass back to the car where we looked, and once again, it was just us and that new family that I'd just pulled up. As we were leaving, Sarah told the family what had happened to us. The mom and dad decided not to take their kids in there, and we all left that parking lot. To this day, I couldn't tell you what that hike was called, or if anything had happened there at the park. But all I know is that I should trust in my gut when we're in the wooded area, and I think the fact that my friend got the same feeling of being watched, that was a second chance to turn around. I was about 17 years old, and my friend Tony Sanderval was the one who had seen the Bigfoot. I would have never believed him if it were not for the one fact that he went straight home to his uncle, who sat in a tree all night with a gun in hopes of shooting the Bigfoot for the bounty. Tony's uncle was older than us high school kids and was known to be quite the badass, so I would believe Tony saw a Bigfoot before I would believe he would trick his uncle into sitting in a tree all night. We used to hang out at the creek quite a bit as we liked to pack guns with us at the time and we liked to shoot. Being out in the woods gave us the freedom we wanted at that time. I do not quite remember why or exactly who, but I believe it was Brian O'Donnell and Tony Sandoval who went up the road a bit to get some pot. I believe they took a motorbike and one was on back while the other drove. Well, within minutes, they were back, and they both seemed very shook up, shouting they had seen a Bigfoot. Oh, my God, they are real, Brian kept shouting. I told them they were full of shit and probably saw a bear. Brian then said to me, Wayne, do you honestly think we would go get Tony's uncle to sit in a tree all night over a bear? Still, I was hesitant to believe it until I saw what took place next. The two boys got right to business. I mean, they showed up on the bike, shook up, and told us about it, and instantly split right over to Tony's uncle. They all showed up about twenty minutes later, or as instantly as they could get from one place to the next. That day I did not go over to the place where they had seen it, but when they came back, after having gone there with their uncle, they told me they found a hornet hive broken into, and a stick was found with teeth marks on it. Brian told me he believed the Bigfoot used the stick to dig something out of the hornet hive that he ate off the end of this stick. They found footprints, and we all came to the conclusion that the Bigfoot had to come down to get water due to the drought. If you look at records for the year, I'll bet there was quite the drought in 94. I just remember it being a very hot summer, and I remember that summer a pond in Sunny Valley was almost dry. 
This pond had never dried up before, so I would say this year was a hot one. I also know to this day both kids stick to the story that they know what they saw was not a bear. I myself know for a fact that whatever they saw was not a person in a suite, just because of the place and time. I also feel like these two believed what they were telling me, even if I myself did not. This would have been at the beginning of El Nino. Not sure on spelling, anyway. The cycle is going again, soon. So perhaps we can use this to our advantage. I will say this. I believe the boys saw Bigfoot, and I believe they were correct on their reason for it having to come down so low. I think we can almost predict when they will have to come again. That being said, perhaps we should set up a venture... I used to live in northern Wisconsin, a ways north of Minocqua. Our house was against a mostly endless chunk of forest, and I used to go walking all day with my dog, some lunch, a compass, and a point twenty-two just to plink away at squirrels or whatever varmint. One fine day I had ranged particularly far into a mossy low area with soggy ground. The forest had that eerie stillness that seems unnatural that humans don't like. I came out into a clearing with a slightly raised area and saw a goddamn shanty town. It was this cobbled-together town. I shit you not. Had a little main street and maybe seven, ten buildings. One of them was even two-story. I stayed still for a minute, and my dog knew to do the same, and just watched. I decided it was actually a nice place. The clearing let a little sunlight in. The shanties were decorated with those leftover carpet squares. I could see Christmas lights strung up probably for light, not festive purposes. Nothing moved, no sounds. So I took a few steps in gun in hand, not on shoulder. I leaned in the doorway to the first shack. It was well lit via some windows, and it was clearly an apartment. Some candles and a bunch of shitty magazines. It had a bed, a makeshift bookshelf, and a makeshift kitchenette. There was a bit of uneaten food that had not yet rotted on the bookshelf. That last one really caught my attention. I usually go quietly in the woods, but I hadn't been approaching with stealth in mind. Looked at my dog, saw a ridge of hair on his back. At this point, I felt very foolish and conspicuous. Decided it was time to GTFO. My twenty-two wasn't going to stop anyone, and it was, of course, a rifle, poor for close quarters against multiple moving targets. So me and the pooch noped the foul of the air. After we were about five hundred yards, we jogged for about thirty minutes, just to gain distance. We made sure to cross a few streams and alter course a few times. Later in life, I did a mission to go back there. This time, I approached with stealth in mind. No dog and a different gun. No shantytown, all gone. But I could still clearly see signs of where the shacks used to be in their community fire pit. I assumed they went deeper. As a police dispatcher, I had grown accustomed to the occasional strange or unexpected call, but this was unlike anything I had experienced before. It was late and the station was quiet, with only a few of us working the night shift. 
The closed radio channel was rarely used, reserved for sensitive communications or emergencies. So when the sound of static broke through the silence, my curiosity was piqued. At first, the static was overpowering, drowning out any discernible words. My co-worker and I exchanged puzzled glances, wondering what could be causing such interference. But then, amidst the crackling noise, we both heard it, the faint, desperate voice calling for help. Help me, the voice pleaded, barely audible over the tumultuous static. It sent shivers down my spine, a chilling plea that seemed to echo through the room. We strained our ears, trying to make sense of the muffled words, but the interference made it nearly impossible. The minutes turned into hours as we listened attentively, hoping to catch more than those two haunting words. Each time the voice came through, it seemed to grow slightly clearer, as if fighting against the barrier of static. We were determined to uncover the source of this distress call to assist whoever was in need. As the night wore on, my co-worker and I became more frustrated. We knew that every transmission sent over the radio was recorded, logged with the officer's radio identification. It was standard protocol ensuring accountability and maintaining a record of all communication. Yet when we searched for the recordings and logs, there was nothing to be found. It was perplexing. There should have been evidence of those transmissions, a digital trail to follow but it was as if the recordings had vanished into thin air, erased from existence. We were thorough in our search, combing through the system, but it was as if the mysterious voice had never spoken at all. We shared our findings with the senior staff, hoping they could shed some light on the situation. To our surprise, they were aware of similar incidents that had occurred sporadically in the past. It seemed that this eerie voice had haunted a few dispatchers over the years, always managing to elude being captured on record. It was a phenomenon that defied explanation. I'm currently working as a park ranger, but before this I had a job at a different park that I doubt I'll ever set foot in again after what I experienced there last year. During the day, the park was bustling with visitors, and I would conduct numerous walk-throughs and tours. However, my favorite part of the job was when everybody left at night, and I had the entire park to myself. Being surrounded by nature made me the happiest, so this job was a perfect fit for me. One day, an older lady came into the park and asked for a tour. She stood out as the kindest person I had ever met and she seemed to genuinely enjoy my company. For some reason, she prolonged the tour, calling me a child throughout, but in a way that seemed endearing to me. We connected on a deep level and shared a passion for nature. Spending the whole day with her felt wonderful, and there was something warm about her presence that I couldn't quite explain. As darkness fell, the lady began to grow melancholic, and I asked her about it. She confided in me that she felt saddened by our time together coming to an end. I reassured her that she could come back to the park any time she wanted and talk to me. She expressed her gratitude and said she hoped for another chance to visit, but in her voice and eyes, I sensed a belief that she would never see me again after that night. It was a somber moment, and I wondered if she was ill or facing some other life-threatening situation but I refrained from prying as it would have been impolite. 
She mentioned wanting to show me something and led me to a secluded area of the park where a beautiful fountain stood. She explained that the fountain, made of marble, was a cherished creation of her grandfather. To her, it was the most magnificent fountain ever built. As a child, she would often come to its edge and gaze at the water, imagining what her future would hold. However, she never anticipated it would turn out the way it did. Despite her inner calm and peace, the sadness lingered in her eyes. In a tender moment, she cupped my face in her hands and expressed how proud she was of me, how everything had unfolded just as she had hoped. Her words confused me, but I hesitated to ask for clarification. She then said it was time to say goodbye and walk behind the fountain. Curiosity got the better of me, and I followed her, only to find that she had vanished into thin air. It was bewildering because there was no trace of the old lady anywhere. I approached the reception and asked if they had seen an older lady matching her description, but they denied the presence of any such visitor that day. The whole situation felt incredibly eerie, but I pushed it aside and carried on with my day. Fast forward two months later, I was flipping through my mother's photo album and stumbled upon a picture of the old lady. I was taken aback and immediately inquired about her identity. What my mother told me shook my reality and memory to the core. She revealed that the woman in the photo was my great-grandmother. The revelation left me questioning everything. Even to this day, I still believe that something inexplicable occurred during that encounter. The following day, I quit my job. If I ever come across that fountain again, I fear what the truth behind the old lady's words might be, and I'm too afraid to find out if what she told me was indeed true.